All right, Ethan, just on the off chance that any of our listeners actually care about our lives, uh, give us a quick update on colleges. What have you gotten into? Who's who's giving you money? All, all the things. Okay, so I have like a four colleges that are my top, I guess you could say, that right. are hopefully the most likely. I'm still waiting on two of them to get back and the ones that I would go to if, if I got into all of them. So those colleges are UNC Chapel Hill, Hillsdale, Dartmouth, and Boston College. I'm waiting on Dartmouth and Boston College because they get more applications, regular decision, they take longer. Dartmouth moved their deadline up to April 9th, I think, for telling you if you got in or not. And it's usually the end of March on Ivy Day, where, where it always is. There's an Ivy Day? There's an Ivy Day where all the Ivies release decision on the same day. Shield told me. I had no idea. But I guess Dartmouth is not doing Ivy Day now. Um, I did get into uh, Hillsdale and UNC, and they both gave good offers. I'm going to, um, to Washington, D.C. to compete for some more scholarship money for Hillsdale in a couple weeks. And Chapel Hill gave me like an irresistible offer that I'm pretty much going to have to take. And I'm happy with it, too. So happy with that. Good stuff happening on the college front. Fantastic. Well, you're absolutely right about it being a difficult year for applications. I've lost track of how many colleges have sent me. They all have to. It's like they must all like talk to each other or it's just that bad. Like, yeah, I don't get any app. I don't get these emails from like non prestigious schools like nobody's safety schools have emailed me. But all of the reach schools have emailed me with an insanely high uh, percentage of increased applications this year and a uh, increasingly diverse applicant field. And they've actually done way more early decision application acceptances than they normally Mm -hmm. do, at least for some schools. So it's definitely a weird year. Now, of course, that's not what we're here to talk about today. But uh, let's get on to our uh, actual resolution, because, of course, here on What's the Res, we are all about the current conversation about the resolutions in the world of high school debate. Ethan, what's the res? The res is the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. And uh, what an interesting resolution. What are your first, what are your initial thoughts on this resolution? Uh, uh, who thought of this, essentially, is my first <laughs> thought. I mean, clearly there's some board of directors or whatever that had input, people voted it, and I mean, my first thought is if I had a kid, where would I want to leave him or her while I'm not there? And my first thought is not the government. So that's, that's kind of where my mind initially goes. But then I actually ended up talking with someone about it and got a little more nuanced of a perspective. But first, like, raw impression was, yeah, I'm not leaving my kid at the DMV. That, I, I think that's a good initial thought. I mean, honestly, that's uh, government employees are, in some ways, they're necessary because a bureaucracy is a, it is a useful tool to get a large number of functional things done. I yeah. mean, the DMV at a baseline is functional. It does handle car registrations. It does handle ticket processing and the random things they do. It doesn't do it particularly okay. well. Now, let me tell you a little story about the DMV because I just went there. I have been trying to get my adult. Okay, so look, I don't even have my after nines and I'm over 18. So this is, I'm like over a year, two years late on this, right? And COVID has had a massive impact on that. The meetings, you need to schedule a meeting with the DMV like a month and a half in advance. They kicked me out because I didn't have some form last time. And let me tell you, like, it's hard for me to be in the DMV, let alone like an infant or like a little kid. Like, it smells like COVID in there. It looks like COVID in there. Like, it's, it reeks. It's just full. It's like a cesspool of humanity, I guess you could say. Like, and it's just nasty. Like, nobody's happy. Everybody's grumpy. Everybody's greasy. Like, you, they clearly took a half day on work for this, and you know you're still not going to get what you want. So... Where was all of this last year when I wanted you to write a satirical short story in literature class? Because that's already the, 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 the DMV, DMV satire has already been done in Zootopia with the sloth. I know. So I can't copy so that. So good. 
No, but you're, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's that's the DMV is a standard trope across. I think most states, honestly, though, um, North Carolina is way better than Virginia. The Virginia DMV is fully government run. North Carolina, I was shocked to learn when I moved here, is actually they they outsource most DMV functions to a private company. What? No way. Yeah. I didn't know that. Get so, me one of those. For as bad as it is, it's better than it is in other states. And it, you're, you're right about the fact that it does work. It might take a while. It might take longer. You might need to come back a few times and reprint a couple things. But right. it does get the job done. So give and it The that. question there that I think you've raised uh, in a really good way is, is that what we want for the smallest of children? Do we want something that works? And that, that really is at the heart of this resolution. Wait, my initial thought was, uh, this, I went straight to one of my favorite episodes of The Office, where Jim and Pam, the classic romantic couple of The Office, they've gotten married, they, uh, Pam is pregnant with their first kid, and they're going to interview at a prestigious daycare. And I don't have kids. I've not done this, but I've talked to friends who do. Uh, This is a thing where where parents will like they'll identify the good daycare and the good preschool. And uh, in some places, parents will kind of they'll map out this daycare, this preschool, this Ivy League esque Mm -hmm. elementary school pipeline thing. Oh man, it gets crazy. But parents want good daycare, and it's they for Jim and Pam on that episode. It was really a necessity because they needed a they're a two income family, like a lot of families in the United States today. And of course, in the episode, the, the joke of the episode is that Jim walks in on the guy that they're going to interview with in the bathroom, and it's super awkward. And eventually, it just he he denies the, their it, their interview goes so badly that they don't go to that daycare. But the uh, the next couple episodes, they follow this story arc where Pam is home with the baby, and eventually she's using her maternity leave. But when she her maternity leave is up, she has to go back to work because either she loses her job and they lose their income, or she's going to stay home with the kids. And it kind of frames, I think, the classic issue that a lot of uh, a lot of parents are, are caught in. Where you're, you're, you've set your expenses up to that you in such in such a way that you need two incomes to meet expenses and live a certain lifestyle, and the question is, well, now that we've got kids, does someone stay home with the kids? Typically, the mom. Does mom stay home with the kids, or do we do daycare? And at that point, how do we pay for daycare becomes a big question. Right. So I guess like in or, sort of to frame that that whole example into an essential question for the round is is the need that universal child care would fill enough of a need to justify making it a government program. Yeah. Or or I guess you could even put it, is it enough of a need for it to just work and not be like, you know, the premium prestige daycare that you would see in the example. And that's a question that covers, you know, pretty much every debate topic we have, even especially public forum debate topics. We just had the one, not just, but about, you know, Medicare for all we had a little while ago. Mm Mm-hmm. A couple cycles back um, the, before at West African Urbanization. Right, yeah. Is the problem we're aiming to, or that we're targeting, large enough of a problem so that we need it, a solution that works, even if it's not perfect, and a universal solution at that? Yeah, so. I think that that's that's key here because we are not talking about just a single state by state plan. We are talking about a universal child care program. So whatever affirmative ends up arguing, they've got to deal with that word universal. Uh, now, I think the one of the other things that we got to deal with, too, on uh, definitions is uh, how old are we talking about here when we talk about universal child care? I mean, are, are we talking about uh, after infants are weaned through preschool? Uh, or are we talking like through – are we talking through kindergarten? Uh, how does this exactly work? 
And I'm assuming that we're not going like, to carry this through and say, aha, this is actually guaranteeing uh, childcare through age 18. But instead, this would kind of be basically covering that gap between infancy to when kindergarten through 12th grade public education kicks in. I can, I can see someone finding a card about like a psychological study done where there's a certain age cutoff for like when a kid can kind of do X, Y, and Z by themselves and doesn't need their biological mother or mother figure there to sort of attend to them at all times. Like I can see that someone just finding that standard card, everybody adopting it and that kind of being the solid definition, you know? But I mean, I think this question is still valid regardless as to whether or not someone finds a specific card to define it by. Like, I mean, there's going to be plenty of psychological arguments to be made about what are the benefits of having a child stay with its mother for this amount of time. It, it, would it be a better thing for society if kids stayed with their mothers until they were this age and not, were not in daycare? But there's, plenty, again, plenty of arguments to be made on the other side about accessibility to daycare and mm-hmm. you know putting people to work, things like that. Well, now, uh, Ethan, talk to me about your initial thoughts on that, that word uh, guarantee. What all is implied or covered in the idea of guaranteeing this universal so child care? Definitely paid for taxpayer dollars. It's a federal program, or I'm assuming it's a federal program. It's universal child care. Um, it could, I guess in a nuanced sense, it could take place kind of like your DMV example where we're outsourcing through private institutions, but I wouldn't see how that would affect anything on the financial side of things because we're still funding it in the same way though maybe logistically speaking you could have some benefits in a plan oriented kind of sense there um and we're talking about federal standards for training licensing and all all the whole nine yards right it's kind of like the my first thought when i talked about this with someone else was the food and drug administration standards for like how much of this substance could be in this you know packaged item nutrition facts like all of those different labels now we're going to have an entire new list of standards for who can be allowed to operate or have a job at a daycare and, you know, like what, who are we going to let the kids around? Like what's the age cutoff? What's the background check sort of thing? Which in a very real sense could – would I mean really there's going to be – if that happens, a – I mean there's going to be a massive jobs impact – because I mean, I'm thinking right, I'm thinking of there's a lot of people who will work in daycare and early childcare. Uh, that's a less regulated area right now. For decades, oh, yeah. I have a I have an aunt who worked in a daycare center in uh, northern Alabama, and as far I cannot imagine that she has a particular license or certification. What she has is experience being a mom, mm-hmm. and then working in a church Sunday school nursery for years and then joining in a town daycare center. And she's great at taking care of small kids. There's no problem there. She's got like six grandkids of her own. It's not like there's a, there's a lack of real qualification. But once you put this official government seal of approval on it that typically is accompanied by everything you're describing, licensure, certification, safety standards, and so on, there is no way that my aunt would go through all of the stuff that would then be required if this was going to happen. And I think she's relatively normal for the mm-hmm. kinds of folks who work those sort of jobs. It could, yeah, it could be. And then there's, there's more like corporate sort of daycares almost. Like I know there's this one name called Right Time where they'll hire like kids. I mean, not kids, but you know, like 20s, 30s, and whatever. Right, right. They just kind of hang out and turn the TV on and whatever and give someone an Xbox controller if they can't turn on Minecraft or whatever. Like, I've been to daycares when I was younger. This is what it was like. Like, I mean, they would throw a movie on if someone wanted to climb the rock wall instead. They just got to make sure no one busts their head. And, like, it's that it, it was fun, though. Like, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed going to those places. But, um, again, the idealism, pragmatism sort of idea. But, 
then I don't want to skip over the licensor and training too quickly because it begs the question, is this an area where you need to remove the incentive for profit? And the, the parallel that sort of immediately comes into my mind is private prisons or the whole argument about how we need to only have federal prisons because there's no incentive for profit. So we're feeding them the correct amounts. We're, you know, taking extra measures to make sure basic levels of nutrition are met and that, you know, you're not just like shutting off the power in cells to save money and people are starving and freezing and all that sort of thing. Right. So could you sort of use that logic in parallel in the childcare sense? I mean, maybe it's necessary to have certain licenses. Maybe it's necessary to have certain like standards that people have to meet so that a private corporation wouldn't just hire someone off the street with no age restriction as long as they're a person that can work hours and get the job done. Maybe removing the incentive for profit could get the job done better in this sense and make it accessible to everybody. Which, of course, goes to the flip side as well, where you could argue, and I'm, I'm sure there are people who make this argument for private prisons. I think it definitely applies here, where you could argue that uh, in reality what would actually lead to the creation, the implementation of those higher standards is the profit motivation. That your higher quality daycare centers are going to be the ones that offer a product that the market will bear and that parents want. Because parents want the best for their kids. And parents are gonna pull their kids out of a shoddy daycare center if they have the ability to. Which might be an argument as well for saying, here's why we need a baseline for here is the minimum of care that and then the, the market ticks up and says, okay, if you want better care, we'll provide that at a private daycare center. Kind of like the public school, private school stereotypical argument goes. Right, and then a lot of uh, some issues that come in with that is clearly the affordability of it, because if you can have the same thing with mandated standards and federally enforced standards, that's free, clearly it's the preferable option. Again, whether or not we could achieve that is the question. And then I also see an opportunity for a perm on the negative, um, where you could say, okay, we clearly there's problems with profit in private daycare centers and the you know the drive for greed and profit and whatever is is making daycares worse so we implement federal mandates and impose them upon private daycare centers so that we can reap the benefits of better standards but also have a private corporations i mean i can see someone trying it but that you could try that with any argument about you know private public sort of thing but again it's another option that's still out there that fits the framework so i can see someone using it it's true, but I, I don't see that being like the big direction this round. No, is not even in. not even close. I mean, I, I can see that as a desperate move and like the yeah, like but the I mean, I think that's goes. really gonna that's gonna derail the debate if somebody goes in that direction. It suddenly establishes that it, it becomes a debate about big government versus small tailored government policy yeah. and whether the market actually responds in the way that big government proponents think it does. I think the big issue of this round is actually going to be feminism on both sides. I see a strong feminist argument on both sides of this debate, um, where I think this basically this argument is really an extension of the feminist movement insisting that women have the right to work. And if women do have the right to work, does that right then extend to a guaranteed right to work even when uh, you now have new responsibilities of a child to take care of? So if you have a right to work, but you've given birth to a child, does society then have an obligation to enable you to continue working while, you are, while your child is young enough to need that kind of care? So I, mean, I think the, the obvious problem here that, that occurs is that uh, if mothers have to care for their children during the day, then they are not in the workforce. So on affirmative, I think there's a clear feminist argument arguing that because we as a society affirm the uh, right of women to work, we then by, we are also affirming the right for them to have childcare so that they are able to work. That, that right care is an enablement to work as kind of an implication. 
But then on neg, I think there's an easy flip of the argument to say that we are so overvaluing the participation of women in the workforce that we are devaluing the unique value that mothers give in the process of raising children. And we are systemically setting up society to require a two-income family that means that mothers are not properly valued. And so it's sort of going down a more second-wave feminism rather than third-wave feminism, if you're familiar with the distinction between those two schools of thought. I can sort of discern the degrees of radicalness, but I don't know the principles of each individual the, wave. But. For a very brief primer, yes, uh, please. Since, um, your feminism is kind of usually described in these three waves, and we're currently in the middle of a fourth, okay. uh, where the initial feminism is sort of a uh, feminism of legal rights. Okay. Uh, that's the Think of that as the right uh, votes for women kind of era. And I'm vastly simplifying a, an enormously right, complex right. body of literature and arguments. Second wave feminism is a feminism of really equality in terms of property ownership, equal, equal access in the workplace. Um, third wave feminism is the much more radical feminism of the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s, where it's a, sort of a... Um, uh, to put it in rather crass terms, a sense of like, well, we were oppressed, so now we're women are going to oppress men in, in turn. And sort of a, like, we're going to flip the, the, the paradigm completely. Where we currently are in terms of feminist discourse, as far as I've kind of followed current discussions, is sort of trying to, uh, there are plenty of authors who want to carry the feminist movement all the way uh, in a more radical direction. There's also people who are attempting to kind of rescue a sense of like, well, we agree that women have not had full and equal treatment, and we want full and equal treatment, but we also don't want to get rid of the unique things that only women can do, and we think that valuing that is important. So there's sort of this current attempt to define how exactly does that go, and the question of work is key to that, because there, there was a moment in the middle of the feminist movement of the 70s and 80s and 90s where there was this kind of message proclaimed in the way that societal messages are sort of just absorbed mm -hmm. yeah. and proclaimed. Yeah, totally. That women can have it all. You can be a mother, you can be a wife, you can also be an executive, and you can have it all. And the question currently is like, well, is that actually true? And I think this resolution brings that question to the forefront. Oof, is yeah. it true that you can move in all these ways that are taking a woman out of the home and, and say that you can't have it all? Or is it rather the case that we need to look back and say, perhaps it's actually not the case if they, and uh, that, that the obligations of motherhood should over should outweigh the uh, the right to be in the workforce and so on. Mm, it's question. hard to say all of this no. without already sounding offensive. And no, sort no, no, of like, no. I, I appreciate the the neutrality that you you attempted to give that. And I think that you did give that, and I'm, I'm okay. not sure if all no, of our good. listeners agree, but I know you've read <laughs> literature on this, so I, I appreciate the overview for sure. I think that's fair. Um, no, feminism is going to be the key issue in this debate for 100 percent sure. Uh, this is going to be. It's just. It's just such a deep. I mean, which is perfect, perfect for Lincoln Douglas. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's, so good. it's it's great for Lincoln Douglas. Like, it just it just begs a question about it's about responsibility essentially. Like, if you, which in 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 an essence, like, should this responsibility, should the choice to have a child within a marriage be sort of compensated for on a societal level by providing 
equal opportunity to work with daycare or through daycare if, if not provided through any other means. I mean, I'm just going to point out that you also you located that within a marriage. It's also you've also got to consider the right, fact that right. like, are we then asserting that this child has to be inside a marriage, or mm-hmm. is this also are we going to say that well, no, you don't have to be married to take, participate in universal child care. You can't. Well, I mean, if you have universal, a child, universal, yeah. yeah. So again, that that wouldn't even work. Like. Is it the government's responsibility to take care of the children under the potential assumption that a woman wants to go back to work or, in the other sense, like have to take care of a child because they have to take care of a child, regardless of whatever motivation? So I'll let the debaters handle that one. (laughs) It's also – this is another place where I think – and I, I see this more frequently in congressional debate than I do in uh, in LD or PF. But this is going to be one of the places where um, teenagers are going to be discussing a lot of things that they don't uh, – that presumably have not yet themselves experienced. They're going to be talking about all of these groups of people who have had children and want to go into the workforce or don't want to go in the workforce. And yet they themselves are not parents and are not actively able to be parents yet. All of those things are, are also in play. So it's going to make this kind of an interesting discussion, to yeah. say the least. Um, okay. Well, I, I at least had some thoughts on, uh, on values if, if debaters are thinking a traditional debate case structure. Uh, so I think on, on AF, the um, two values that left to my mind were equality and yes. probably economic fairness, something okay. like that. You're looking for sort of a Rawlsian justice as fairness sort of yes, criterion or approach great. there. Any other thoughts on AF values? Uh, I'm peaking. I already see util on neg, and I think yep. that that's a perfectly viable value on a, um, affirmative for this one too just because, um, oddly enough, like the economic argument is – sort of in the hands of the affirmative as well in the sense that you're putting more people to work so which there's plenty of links that you can draw to a growing economy and a booming economy from more people being at work um so i think that affirmative has a unique access to to util on this resolution more so than it does in others okay because um, I would, I, mean, I would see on neg there. Um, my initial one that I would run to if I were writing this case would be human dignity, and wanting to look at the uh, unique dignity of mothers <clears throat> in particular. And I, I actually, we'll get to this more in a moment, but I, I want to run a neg K on this okay. resolution. Why? Uh, I want to run a K that asserts that the prior harm that the resolution is asserting is the benefit of a two-income family and that we need to structure society to – and if we do put in place universal child care, we are actually normalizing the two-income family that is the current status quo. And we are creating a society that is no longer able to even raise the question, should both parents work? Instead, we're saying, oh, we're going to assume that you both want to work and that your work in the marketplace as a lawyer, a doctor, a paralegal, a teacher, a principal, whatever, is of greater social value than the work that you provide in creating a home and raising your own child. That's great. That's a, that's a great assumption. And then you can also plug in the assumption that not only are you assuming that you should work, but you're assuming that others should bear the consequences of you Gaining that ability on a societal like on yeah, level, or they that, should pay for or, it. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're assuming that you, as well as everybody else in society, should contribute to your right to work. Yeah, is another key assumption. 
I think so. And yeah. then both of those assumptions then create the initial harm that I'm going to say, that's going to kick this debate into an a priori space where we need to actually go back and we need to debate the positives and negatives of a two-income society rather than uh, – and then I'm – now – to actually make that work would require somebody who's much better at case strategy than I am. I don't know. That's, that's my initial impulse, and I would ground that in the human dignity argument. I would see the, uh, the neg ground on util really being uh, kind of looking at the fact that then looking at a totally different direction. We can't fund this. We can't implement this, and we're actually going to cause all kinds of psychological harms. There's actually a ton of data if you compare uh, if you compare children who are in daycare. Uh, now, there's uh, we'll get to some of this. I, I've grabbed a couple of quotes uh, to, to support this, but there's some really interesting studies that have been done on this where the AF can can cite certain studies claiming that daycare leads to uh, certain increases in academic performance that lead to decrease in crime, but there's other articles claiming those studies are actually fraudulent and are ignoring the mental health harms of uh, children who grow up in a daycare center more than they grow up in an actual home. And kind of looking at that and saying, actually, there's severe mental health harms here. So I, I think you could also look at a util case on feasibility and long-term mental health harms of universal child care as opposed to being raised by a family that has structured itself to take care of children. Oh, man. I think negative is going to be – need to be a little trick – not even tricky on this one, but negative, you're going to need to have your hand around affirmative's throat on this one for this particular reason is that – the United States ought to guarantee universal child care. That's a choice. That's exactly like when Joe Biden got up on stage and said Medicare for all who want it, right? It's a, it's a total scapegoat. Not, not anything against you know, Biden's Medicare proposal but, or medical proposal. But again, do not let affirmative have the loophole that this is a choice. So therefore, more people are feeding into the program than people will reap from it. So therefore, it works. And it's just a perfect opt-in, opt-out system that anybody can have and anybody can not have. You can have a two-income family. You can have a one-income family. A mom stays home and whatever. That's not going to fly. On negative, like I, I don't think it's an implausible position to take to assume that all daycare is bad and to negate the resolution, right? Because if you're running psychological arguments, you're not just saying, oh, you're, you're making the proposal, right? That time that children spend with mothers is critical, right? So that applies to private daycare. It doesn't matter what type of daycare you're paying for, not paying for private public. That applies to every type of daycare. And if you're going to go fully on a psychological case and run util, I mean, there's Whoa, a lot man. of kids, right? So like you can grab the majority in that. And there's kind of like the idea that everybody that's a kid grows up to be an adult at some point. So every, this is going to affect everybody if this is a, you know, a universal sort of standard that we're holding society to. I mean, so you don't sound like an oppressive patriarch on the negative side. Don't make it about who gets to go to work and who doesn't go to work. Make it about the future generation. Oh, make it I about like the kids. Lot. Make it about how are you going to properly steward the mind, the mental health of that child so that they don't grow up to be, you know, like a criminal or, you know, a disadvantaged person in society so that we can solve for certain issues at the the level the age level of a child like make this about the kids on neg so you don't sound like a jerk well and i i think honestly i think that's a great word to think about how this sounds because i mean there, there's a there i'm sure people have already started writing um feminist fem k alternative cases on AF. Yeah. Uh, just ready for Neg to kind of sound like a supporter of the inherent patriarchy and then bring this and bring a feminist onslaught on AF. 
to and and the, that's that's probably right. So, but focusing on the kids shifts the shifts that focus a lot. I like that. that and does it does it matter thought. that half the kids are female, anyways? Like, I mean, because you're those are still like girls that are harmed, right? And then if you find some study about how children in daycare, like. What do they look like, you know, 15 years from then, right? No, this is legitimate. Like, do they have the same college acceptances, like levels of education, like SAT scores? Like, there's studies for all of this stuff. Not that I've found it, but I know it's out there. So, like, are you harming future generations of men and women? But if you really want to focus on the feminist side, that you can hone in on the women's part, right? And maybe we see some of these, like, issues later in life stemming from... A potential link to time spent with mothers like that's much less of a link but i still think that it, the feminist like umbrella can't really like i mean there's still female children right well they, that's that's true i'm just the only times i the times i have attempted to debate more feminist leaning friends than, than i it's really hard once they paint you with a patriarchal patriarchal brush to combat that so may so make it about the kids. I think right? so, but if you're making it about the kids, I would try to shift the argument away from gendered argumentation at all. Sorry, so not kids, mental health of children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah, yeah. the kids, but not focusing on like boy kids, girl kids. That, that, okay, that, yeah, that's shifting good. away wanna, from that. You don't want to play the play the game. Exactly. On, you don't want to play the ass game on the neg. Like neg, you're going to be playing your own game. You're going to need a tight grip because the fact that this is a opt in, opt out type of thing, like it's not Medicare for all. It's not like a universal, like everybody does this, everybody does that. This is voluntary, which sucks for the negative. Like that's not fun. And honestly, on a, um, but it does, you're, you're sending my thoughts in a different direction. If you've already set up the util case, you could take all of these standard arguments against uh, existent welfare programs that we already cannot afford. Yeah. And extend those arguments against a new massive social welfare plan. Uh, the very and so I mean already we, we cannot we're already gonna be insolvent on social security, on um, Medicare for on Medicare as it stands, also Medicaid. We can't pay for any of these things for the next twenty years. We definitely can't also pay for a universal childcare program. So if you want to take a strict economic route on NEG, you could. But you definitely don't have any of the pathos that AF is going to have. Well, here, here's uh, – nobody cares. Like that's – It's so true. Like nobody – I know. That's just not real anymore, man. Like, it's real, no, but it's not. we're like, probably not still going to get world. stimulus checks in, in a couple months. But when, like when that's the argument just to get – like affordability isn't even a thing anymore in debate. Like it's just – whatever. It's dead. Affordability is dead. Make it a hashtag. <laughs> on that uh, very exciting Affordability note. is dead and we have killed it. Thank you, Proto Nietzsche. <laughs> All right. So uh, what we could also I, – I, honestly, if you, if you don't like traditional LD, I'm going to suggest that you could easily do a uh, one-man policy approach. Uh, this is an easy plan, advantage, or plan, or counter plan, and disadvantage type case. Uh, we are talking about a policy, and there are four different legislative models currently in existence. Google them. The easiest one I found, the first one I found was Elizabeth Warren's plan. Uh, there are several others, and there are also the Manhattan Institute and Brookings Institute both have analysis of the existing plans. Uh, it's not hard to research those, and then it becomes... If you take that kind of approach, it becomes more a matter of how do you use your cards and your research and respond. Uh, the, crafting the case is not going to be the difficult part there, I don't think. No, 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 no. Good stuff on both sides. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Okay. Uh, well, I propose as we're kind of looking at the remainder of our uh, 
our time on this episode. Um, I'm going to give initial thoughts on AF, and then I want to hear your response. Okay. And I'll do the same thing on NEG. Uh, and then we've got a couple of uh, th- closing thoughts, and yep. we'll suggest some articles and wrap this thing up. Um, on AF, I think part of this uh, initially, uh, it's worth noting that this does, the AF world does solve a felt need. Uh, we do live in a status quo economy where the two income families uh, fa- two income families face immediate economic disruption with the arrival of a child. Children are expensive and they require care. There is a personal felt desire to care for your own child. There is the moral obligation to care for your own child. And there is the economic necessity of, like, this kid is expensive. Uh, in the first six months of a child's life, we're talking about nearly 24-hour care. So that's expensive. Uh, the status quo, it is for most levels of income, uh, and uh, I'm just going to use the ones that I'm most familiar with in the teaching world. Uh, if you're a teacher, your salary is almost equal to what it costs to put a kid in daycare for 50 weeks of the, of the year, five days a week. So in all honesty, in a two-income two family, uh, typically the wife has a choice She's either she's going to basically break even if she stays home, and if she if they go with the daycare route, in most cases, and this this varies depending on cost of living, uh, it's going to cost her entire salary for her to for them to go the daycare route. So, uh, what the mean that means then is this brings in the women's equality part uh, that this is a there's a strong case to be made that uh, this that really this is an issue of women's equality. That this uh, makes women equal to men in terms of being able to work full time, and if we are really committed to female equality in the workforce, then this is a natural consequence of that. Now, this also has a strong, I think, single mother impact, that where this enables a single uh, working mom to continue working without worrying about uh, the loss of her sole source of income, uh, if that if that's her situation. So you've got all kinds of kind of impact directions you could take that in. Ethan, what are your thoughts on all that? Uh, no, that's like that That argument is, I mean, just pure fire on the affirmative side. Like the negative is going to have a hard time dealing with that without sounding bad. I mean, and, and really having to contend with evidence regarding, you know, maternity leave. Like there's... I mean, this is the type of thing where you like reach for Denmark and Sweden and whatever, like, right? I mean, this, this, no, seriously, like where other countries have done it better, there's examples. I mean, what would it be like if you had X amount of maternity leave with X amount of pay and, you know, for this long and it's going to get into all of that. This is the meat of the debate right here. So solid on affirmative. Now, and there is, of course, I'm, I'm reading that as a pretty, pretty darn conservative person. If you've been listening to our podcast at all, that that's not going to be news. Um, you probably, I'm assuming this is a women's rights issue. I'm sure you could take some of those same example countries you just mentioned. They're also the front runners in paternity leave. So you could also look at, I mean, I'm sure there are examples of uh, a two income family where it actually makes more sense for the father to be home and where you could kind of flip the, the, the gender ratios on that as well. Yeah. There's going to be some fun to be had with this one for sure. Uh, on NEG, um, my mind initially goes to the harms that we've already talked about of government employees working with the smallest children. Um, how do you deal with, I mean, uh, if, if you're willing to go there in terms of argumentation and research, I am confident you can find all kinds of data about government employees molesting small children. Uh, so how do you prevent that? 
So that, that, it's, and that, that becomes an initial question. Uh, implementability becomes a huge concern. Uh, we're talking about hiring personnel. We're talking about building care centers. We're talking about paying for this program. There's all kinds of ways this can be done. Uh, are we talking about building something from scratch? Are we talking about partnering with existing programs? In which case, how do you guarantee the universality part of this? That becomes really tricky. Uh, I've already talked about my thoughts on devaluing the roles of mother, uh, role of mothers in forming their own children. That I really think that is a huge. There's a huge argument to be made there. Um, particularly, uh, female debaters will probably find that that argument sticks a little bit better than male debaters making an argument about about motherhood. I suspect. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think that, is uh, that a I fair mean, observation? It's, I think like in, internal biases will say like this person sounds more legitimate if they're a woman talking about motherhood. But I mean. If, if you've got a good, solid judge, you can get past it. Right. Well. And, yeah. and again, warrant, 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 yeah. warrant. Evidence is everything. Um, on uh, all still on neg, it does seem to me that we are moving closer and closer to Plato's Republic. Uh, I'm yeah. doing a class this semester that's required us to reread sections of the Republic. Plato imagined 2,400 years ago a perfect society with perfect justice, and he started with abolishing the family because it's in the family that you learn private property habits. <laughs> Instead, in the perfect republic, you learn that everything is everyone's, and the way that you abolish private property is you abolish the family and you have children raised in creches. You get rid of a private marriage and everyone belongs to everyone, and the children are the children of the state. We're Ooh. this the resolution here everyone is moving belongs to everyone. Oh, yeah, man. Sharing is caring <laughs> in, in Plato's Republic. All right. Uh, this is all worked out in detail in Joe Walton's novels. Uh, if anybody wants to read about the uh, one philosopher's novel imagination of the how the Republic would work. But in this case, what you're really doing is you are taking the children out of the home and you are encouraging parents to surrender their children to government employees who are going to be espousing whatever government values they are required to espouse and training these children not to be their own individual private citizens, but rather the government will always take care of you. So there is a strong libertarian argument against this, which, as you already pointed out, can be equally extended into other existing government Problems yeah. like I first ran across this argument from uh, Dr. Michael Watson of Calvin University. Uh, this is one of his arguments against um, the government-funded or uh, against school lunches, actually, and school breakfast in public school, because he thinks school breakfast teach children that the government will always feed you. Hmm. Rather, he wants children to learn that you get food by working, and if you work, then you will eat, and that. Eating is a matter of private productivity rather than uh, the state. We need more of those people. <laughs> we do. But um, uh, our social security programs would also be more solvent if we had more of those people. That, yeah. Um, okay. This is also the opposite of European moves to establish paid family leave structures. Uh, instead of where some of those same uh, countries you mentioned are all about, they'll just pay mothers for two years to stay home and raise their children in those critical years. So instead of so, I think there's a, there could be a very interesting alternative. Instead of private daycare or instead of publicly funded daycare, why don't we commit to paying women's salaries at their current level of employment while they stay home with children? Oh, that's the best thing ever, right? That's like if I man, if I was negative and came up and said, or sorry, if I was AF and Ned came to me with that, it's like well, let's just pay women their full salary and they get to stay home. It's like uh oh, you're in danger now. Like, uh, I would hate to be that AF, <laughs> but. 
But no, is that? I, I, I think okay. it's a viable. It's a viable option. Um, there, oddly enough. Um, well, and uh, this is a related side note. I promise. Um, I think it's Poland. Uh, it's one of the Eastern European countries that has a real has had a really sharp population decline. Uh, it might be Lithuania. It might be Hungary. It's one of those kind of small Eastern European countries. Um, they have recently put in place a program whereby if you have a child. They will pay you like several thousand dollars per kid. They want to incentivize the creation of more children because if their population decline continues, they'll be, they won't have a sustainable economy in 50 years. So the way to reverse that is to incentivize more kids. Uh, this kind of uh, structure where you're like, okay, we're going to societally enable you to have a family and raise children actually structurally supports that kind of life as opposed to structurally supporting having fewer children because it's economically difficult and incentivizing more participation in the workforce rather than creation of the home and nurturing of the family. Yes, yes, completely. So, And I think to sort of tweak something from the first half of that specifically, I think NEG is a lot more powerful thinking about what we would be missing out on by implementing this program versus what harms would come once we implement this program. Simply because a lot of the harms that would come with the implementation of a universal childcare program would be economic. Those are tired arguments. Nonetheless, they're legitimate, and I think that's the legit reason why this wouldn't work. As funding. a judge who's heard all of those a lot, I agree with calling those tired arguments. Yes, they're, they're definitely well spent. They're completely legitimate, and I think that if, in all practicality, Universal childcare would not work because we can't afford it, but or it wouldn't work for a long period of time because we can't afford it. I guess is a better way to put that. But um, I think for the sake of novelty and debate and actually making a good case for you know mother motherhood essentially, um, focus on what we would be missing out if we implemented this program is is less not not don't say that more women would be we would be missing out on less women working I guess which just sounds terrible and that's just a weird way of putting it. Yep. Focus on we would be missing out on you know, the mother-child relationship in a large and universal sort of sense. And I think that that focusing on that side of things avoids the type of rebuttals you would get, like harms of government employees working with the smallest children. And you talk about how we could find plenty of examples of government employees molesting children. Like, you could find examples of anybody molesting children. Like, I mean... Yep. Start Focus on the motherhood. <laughs> I think that's a... That's focus, a on, focus on the psychological... Oh, there's just so much of it. Like, the psych arguments always suck, but here they won't. They just won't. They're going to be so good. There's a, there's, there's a lot that we could do with this particular argument. I mean, there, there's some great stuff uh, on the table. All right, Ethan, I feel like we've said most of what we've really brought to this episode. Any final thoughts or suggestions for people prepping, on the, prepping this one? No, I just, like, I, I think that this is just such a fun one. Like this is such a good resolution because affirmative has good access to economic arguments, which isn't always the case because yes, it may cost a lot, but you're putting more people to work. So maybe we can compensate with that. And, and negative has access to the psychological arguments, which, but which almost you know, never like, happens on, in, okay, on that, NEG and PF that almost or LD. Yes. It almost never happens on NEG. And when it happens on AF, it's like minuscule, like no one cares. Like, yeah, get a therapist. But here, I mean, it's real. Like it, it's like childcare and federally, you know, funded childcare. So I think Neg has a lot of fun access to some unique arguments that you won't see again for a long time. And affirmative has a good economic and equality angle, which don't always mix well, but here it might just. So a great resolution, a, a ton of fun to be had with this one for sure.
Well, props to the uh, NSDA LD Wording Committee. Uh, we, we've had a lot of fun talking about this over the last 45 minutes or so. Uh, my, I guess my last thoughts uh, to folks are just encouragement. Uh, this has been one heck of a year for speech and debate. And uh, this cycle over across March and April will be uh, nationwide. This will be going out to uh, districts and people will be qualifying to go to nationals. Uh, this will be the last big resolution before we get the one that we'll have uh, May and June to prep for. So uh, good luck, everybody. I think as hopefully we've shown on this episode, there's a lot of fun to be had. And there are, honestly, there are, uh, for once, the conservative side has some good arguments that you don't have to sound like a crazy, fundy uh, person who's ready to blow up the world in order to make a conservative argument. And But there's also some great arguments on the progressive side. So there's there's really good argumentation to be had uh, really all across the board here. So uh, we hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode. And uh, yeah, we'd love to get some feedback from you. Ethan, how can people leave us feedback if they want to let us know what they think? If you want to leave us feedback and let us know, you can email us at whatstheresatgmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.whatstheres.com. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.